appreciate you, brother. Thank you for those that serve with him and lead us in worship. People that take up the offering. I'm so grateful for you every single morning. Hope you have a Bible with you this morning. You can open up and you'll join me in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. When you came in, if you got one of those bulletins on the back of that, there'll be some notes if you want to follow along as we study God's Word together. But we are in Exodus chapter 16 this morning. We have been going through the book of Exodus, we've taken a couple of breaks, but we've been walking through the book of Exodus looking at what it means to be set apart as God's people. And throughout the book of Exodus, we have seen different monumental moments throughout thus far in this book. We looked at um, already previously out of Exodus chapter 12 where a big monumental moment happened where God's people were brought out of bondage, out of that Egyptian bondage. That's Exodus chapter 12. We've seen so far in Exodus chapter 14 that they, the people got up against the Red Sea and here comes Pharaoh and his army and they were in a state of panic and not knowing what to do and yet God miraculously worked through Moses and Aaron to then provide a way and the people crossed the Red Sea. And then just a couple weeks ago, out of chapter 15, we were looking about how the people, they got into the wilderness, three days journey, and they find themselves with no water they can drink in fear of death. And they find themselves having a moment of fret, having a moment of worry, having a moment of anxiety, and God showed them a way. God took care of his people. And now we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 16 and we see just as big of a monumentous moment because as these people, as the story is going to unfold and we're going to read it together this morning, as this story unfolds, these people called the Israelites are reminded of the goodness of God. They're reminded about the goodness of God. I wrote down there, um, to camp last Friday night with Jimmy and Jenna and Cody, and we got down to camp in time for supper and the evening service. And as we get there into the evening service Friday night, the, the speaker, Mike Keybone, was talking about the camp high. And he was talking about how often it is you go to youth camp, whether you're a camper or whether you're a sponsor, whether you're a teenager, whether you're an adult, you get to camp and you've spent all this week focused on God. You spent all this week just just firmly fixed upon God, and then you go back to life, you go back to your home, you go back to the world, and yet there's always a world that is waiting on you to not give you a high five, but give you a face five. You ever had one of those? You ever had one of those? You, you, you spend all week at camp, and you're like, oh, I'm so energetic. Oh, this is so awesome. Oh, this is so cool. And then you come back to life, and life has a way of not giving you the high five, but giving you the face five. And one of the other temptations that we have is that we come back to this thing called life, and we have all these things that we say we're going to do for God. And yet somewhere in the course of the next days and weeks and months ahead, us adults, and especially you students, you're going to be challenged. You're going to be challenged on your obedience before God. You're going to be challenged on the follow-up and the commitments that you've made this past week. And you are going to be tested. And the rest of us adults in this room, we can testify that when those moments come, some of us will succeed, some of us will fail. But so often, Satan is right there to Show us our mistakes more than our successes. And the world is so easy to remind you and I of how short we are when it comes to our obedience 
to God. And so this morning, I want to take some time out of Exodus 16 to remind us of the goodness of God. Now, we're going to get there in a roundabout way. You might say, well, Spence, I don't see how you're going to connect these two. Hopefully, you'll see that at the end of our time this morning. But I want to show you, and I want us to see together the goodness of God. Now, all through this book so far, and all throughout Scripture, if you think of it as a whole, we're reminded God reveals himself to us through his word. God reveals ourselves to us through his word. And then God uses his word to reveal his will for our lives. So, so every time we come to the word of God, whether it's Genesis chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 20, when we get to God's word, we're reminded that all throughout God is revealing himself to us, God is revealing ourselves to us, and God is revealing his will to our lives. So the same application can be given here in Exodus chapter 16. And I'm going to start off and uh, start reading just this word over into your hearing. If you'll follow along in your copy of God's word as I, as I read, aloud from, read aloud from mine. But I want us to see this morning the goodness of God. And hopefully we will see this as the passage unfolds. It says, they... This is talking about the Israelite people. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold! I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and all the people shall go out and gather a day's portions every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. I'm going to stop right there because I don't want us to miss this first evidence that we have of God's goodness. It's summarized here at that last phrase that I read into your hearing out of the first part of verse 7. It says there, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. This is Moses and Aaron speaking to the people because he has heard your grumbling. The first evidence of God's goodness in our lives is that he hears our grumbling. Can you just imagine the idea that you have a God, an all-powerful God, an all-knowing God, a God that created everything, and yet this God who knows everything, has done everything, has control and power over everything, and yet his creation comes and begins to grumble to him. And you see there, what is the grumbling about? Well, it might seem to be a very um, understandable grumbling. They are out in the middle of the wilderness. They have left the Red Sea. They're headed, if you think about on a map, they're headed to the southeasterly direction, down to the Mount Sinai. They ran out of water after three days. They now have got water, but now they're running out of food. And they have no food. They're on this journey, and they're hungry. They find themselves in a state of, I am hungry. I do not know where my food is going to come from. And so it says there, back up in verse 2, so they begin to grumble against Moses. They begin to grumble against Aaron. Now this word grumble, you can maybe 
synonymously, you can redefine it a different way. You can say they were murmuring, they were discontent, they were complaining, they were whining, they were sowing discord. And here in the text, in these first seven verses, if you will, the people are grumbling before the Lord. Why? Well, I put there in your notes, because the internal often drives the external. The internal is what drives the external. See, that they got hungry in their stomachs, they got hungry in their bellies, and they began to whine and complain because they didn't have something to satisfy their bellies. All they were focused on was the physical. All they were focused on what they didn't have. All they were focused on what they wanted. All they were focused on is me, 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 me. And so they began to be hungry. They began to grumble. They began to complain. And as evidence here in the text, this complaining then becomes contagious. Starts off with one person. I'm hungry. When are we going to eat? Goes to the next person. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. It goes to the next person. Why haven't we stopped and got something to eat yet? It goes to the fourth person. When are we going to eat? I'm hungry. We are uh, from here to camp in uh, in a school bus. It's about two hours and 45 minutes. Depending on how fast you drive through McAllister and Krebs. It's about two hours and 45 minutes. And we're about two hours and 30 minutes. And you can already hear one kid in the back of the bus. When are we going to get there? And then that sparks an idea in another kid. And the other kid spipes up, yeah, when are we going to get there? And the next thing you know, it starts breeding like wildfire. And they're all asking the question, when are we going to get there? And I just give them my standard answer that I've given for 20 years, 15 more minutes. That's the band, uh, my standard answer. I couldn't tell you. We may be 20 minutes. We'd be me an hour and 45 minutes. It doesn't matter. 15 more minutes. And if you ask me in 17 minutes later, the same answer is going to be given. 15 more minutes. But all it had to do was one kid in the bus had to bring up the question question, when are we going to get there? And the next thing you know, more and more people started asking the question, when are we going to get there? And sometimes we fail to remember that when it comes to the grumblings in our lives and when it comes to the grumblings of our heart, one of the evidences of the goodness of God is that God hears our grumbling and he doesn't just knock us down flat. Here in the text, the people began to grumble. And you see that the, the posture of their heart is then evident in the product of their mouths. And, and they begin to complain. And you see that up there in verse 3. Here in the text they start to say, Oh, if we were just back in Egypt, when we had all the food we can eat, when we had satisfaction, when everything was great, oh, if we were back just in Egypt. And they, re- they forget how quickly their condition was in Egypt. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. You might write this down there in the margin of your notes. Exodus 2 and verse 23. They're crying out to God for relief from the bondage of Egypt. Exodus chapter 5 and verse 15. They're coming to Moses saying, Oh, would you please rescue us out of this Egyptian bondage? Exodus 14 and verse 11. They're crying out to God. Oh, please deliver us from this Red Sea. Exodus 15 and verse 24. They're crying out, Oh, that we are so thirsty. Over and over again they cried out to God and God had met their need. But here in Exodus chapter 16, all they want to do is grumble and groan and gripe and whine about what they don't have. And adults, that's not just a danger for the adults. Because students, this is also a problem for you. You start looking around and you see this other peer has something that you don't have. 
They may have a nicer iPhone. They might, not have a, they might have a nicer video game console. They might have a nicer vehicle. They might have nicer clothes. They might have nicer this. They might have nicer that. And the next thing you know, we start comparing ourselves with the people around us instead of the provision from God. And then we start grumbling in the ears of God. Here in the text, they're hungry. They start grumbling before God. But look down there at the last part of verse 7 here in Exodus chapter 16. Because not only do we see the first evidence of God's goodness and that he hears our grumbling, but the second evidence of God's goodness is that he knows our grumbling. Not just does God hear our grumbling, but he knows our grumbling. And he knows who that grumbling is directed to. If you look at the first seven verses of Exodus 16, the people come to Moses and they say, Moses, we want you to give us food. And, and, and they almost present it as they're grumbling against Moses. But what God knows is, is that the grumbling is not towards Moses, but is towards God. You see this there in the last part of verse 7. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, this is verse 8, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat in the morning, bread to be full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. How many times in our daily lives do we grumble about the things in this life, but ultimately we're grumbling about the sovereignty of God? Or we're grumbling about the timing of God? Or we're grumbling about the provision of God? Or we're grumbling about the action of God? Or we're grumbling about the justice of God? Or we're grumbling about the work of God? Or we're grumbling about the presence of God. We are grumbling not against this world. We are grumbling against God. And God knows our grumbling. And here in this text, they come and they begin to whine and they begin to complain. And they begin to do all these things. And Moses rightly identifies that you are not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against God because not God is not giving you what you want. God is not giving you what you desire. God is not satisfying you. And so therefore you're cranky against God. And we have to ask ourselves spiritually, do we whine before we worship? Do we whine before we worship? How many times do we find ourselves in this life going, God, and we start giving him all the list of the things that we don't have or that he hasn't given us or all the things that we want that we haven't received yet? Or we start giving him all the list of the things that are deficient or the things that we don't like or the things we wish we could change or the things that wish we, we wish he would do differently? Or we start going through this whole laundry list instead of coming to God and worshiping before God and saying, God, you've already given us more than we deserve. God, you've already given us more than we had coming. God, you've already given us more than we have earned. We begin to whine before we worship and we begin to compare before we confess. These individuals sitting here in this table they were looking around and saying, I want food and I don't have food. Why can't we have food like we had food in Egypt? Why can't we have food like other people have food? They start to compare themselves to everybody around them instead of confessing who they are before God. And you may say, well, Spence, how in the world is that evidence of God's goodness? This holy God hears our grumbling. This holy God knows are grumbling, and yet this holy God is still good to us. Look down at verse 9, if you will. Then Moses said to Aaron, 
Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke the word to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of my people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God is sitting there in all of his omnipotence and holiness and glory and all those things that are true about him, and God not only hears the grumbling of the people, he knows the grumbling of the people, and yet despite all of this, God still says, I am a good God regardless of how you respond to me and I'm going to show you my goodness. Third evidence of the goodness of God is that God is still good even after we grumble, even after we grumble against God. So what does it say there in verse 13? God says, I will provide for you so that you shall know that I'm the Lord. That's verse 12 and then verse 13. Notice what happens. And in the evening, the quail came up and covered the camp. And the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a, a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know that what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they had measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now the omer is just a measurement, a way to measure. But the idea that God had given them is God said, Okay, so you're hungry? I will provide for your hunger. So what did he do? He brought up quail. Now, I, don't know why, I don't know why he brought up quail. I'd rather him bring up like a duck or a pheasant or something bigger with a little bit more meat on the bone. Seemed like a lot of quail. It takes a lot more quail to satisfy me than it does something bigger. But he brought up quail. And then as the dew lifted up, there was something like, this is just my terminology, there was something like frosted flakes all over the ground that had a taste to it. You'll see this later on in chapter 16 um, in verse uh, la, 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 30. One, that it tasted like honey and had a, had a sweet taste to it. But in the morning when they woke up, there was quail all around them for them to eat. And the bread was there called later on. You'll see they call it manna. The bread was all around them. And they went out and gathered. And the omers, they went and gathered as much as they could eat. As much as they needed. In my terminology, it's like this. It's like every single morning I wake up and outside on the porch, there is a whole, there's a whole banquet table full of fried fish, fried potatoes, and green beans. Some new green beans, you know, they're with the bacon and the, the new potatoes in there with them, you know. And it's like every day I go out and I get all I want. I get all the catfish, I get all the fried taters, and I get all the green beans and the new potatoes. And I just go and I just get my fill. And the next day, the next morning, it's all there again. The next day, the next morning, it's all there again. And every single day, God is providing for me. Why? Because God's good. Because God's good. And so God, even in the midst of their grumbling, even in the midst of their complaining, even in the midst of their discontentment with him, God is still good to them. And here in the text, you see that God provided what they needed. They needed to be fed. Their bellies were empty. They wanted to have something to sustain their energy and to sustain their life. And so God gave them what they needed, not what they deserved. He didn't give them just a PB&J. He didn't give them just a whole loaf of white bread and unsalted butter. He said, I will give you what you need and I will provide. And not only will I provide, but I'll provide more than they deserve. 
So he says there in the text that he said, every single one of you, it's not a matter of you're going to go on the, the, the diet plan and you're only going to get one quail a day or only get one little spoonful of bread a day. No, you get as much as you need, as much as you need to eat, however much will sustain you, however much you need, I will take care of your daily needs. There's a lot of verses about that. Like Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Place like 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 where Peter reminds us that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Or maybe a place like Romans 5, 8 where it says, even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because of the goodness of God, God comes in and not only does he provide what we need, but he provides more than we deserve. The goodness of God is on display in the fact that he continually blesses us. He continually overwhelms us. He continually is that reckless kind of love that we sing about, how God continues to give it to us. And as adults, we walk along this path of life. And we stub our toe and we trip and we fall and we think God cannot love me now because of what I've done. And yet the forgiveness and the grace of God comes in. Or you students find yourself going through life and you find yourself making good decisions, but you also find yourself making bad decisions and you find yourself making that bad decision and thinking, well, they're never going to understand. God could never forgive me. And yet the reckless love of God, the goodness of God comes in and it picks us up and puts us back on the way he would have us to go. It's the goodness of God that comes in that in spite of hearing our grumbling, in spite of knowing our grumbling, he is still a good God. And as Exodus chapter 16, if you can just imagine the idea of Moses or Aaron, they're there and they're like, these people, all they do want to do is whine and complain and yet God continues to love them. What evidence in our life that you and I can point back and to say, over and over again, God has been good to me. There's a fourth evidence that I want to give you here this text. The fourth evidence that even though God hears our grumbling, even though he knows our grumbling, God is still good to us. And yet, even though God is good to us, we still test God. Notice, <laughs> they didn't do anything. Morning time came, the quail was there. They didn't, they, they, it wasn't like they bred it. It wasn't like they raised it. The quail was just there. The bread was just there. Moses said, gather as much as you could eat. This is verse 18. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. He said, all of this is here. It will be here every day. You will satisfy you. It will satiate you. You will be taken care of. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it till the morning. So Moses said, there are some instructions though. God has said that he will continue to provide the quail and he will continue to provide the bread as long as you obey God. So Moses said, don't leave any of the manna left over in the morning. Why? Because, Lamentations 3.23, his mercies are new every morning. So every morning the bread will be there. Every morning you eat whatever you can eat on that day. You don't save any because tomorrow morning God's going to provide a whole new batch of bread. So you don't need to worry about keeping anything over. Your act of faithfulness is eating what you need for today and then not worrying about tomorrow. Why? Because as the Lord prayers tells us, he gives us our bread every day. 
So it says there in verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Any of us adults in this room besides me that can identify to that? God gives me what I need. God gives me more than what I need. God gives me more than what I deserve. And I'm like, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Then as soon as I get my belly full, the one do I do, I then turn and say, now I've got it from here, God. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and a stink. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, and Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Here's the way the story then continues on. God said, I'm going to provide this. I'm going to take care of this. So there's six days in the week that you're going to go out and you're going to gather a measurement of bread every single day. It'll be enough to satisfy you. It'll be enough to feed you. And then as the heat of the day comes on, this bread will melt away and you will be out. If you try to store any of it, if you try to keep any of it, if you try to freighty hole any of it, it's going to put, it's going to rot and it's going to build worms in it. So you need to trust that every day God can take care of you. And then on the sixth day, you get twice the amount that you should. And even though you think the previous six days, if you kept any extra, it would be gone because it is the sixth day going into the seventh because the seventh is a day of rest before the Lord. God will take care of that. So on the seventh day, there won't be any bread. So you need to store up twice as much the day before. This is all a matter of God saying, do it like this. And his people saying, we will do it like that. And yet God's word is replete with instructions. This is what I want you to do. And yet, in our humanity, we start to come in and start to try to manipulate or to compromise or to twist or to misuse God's word. God says one plus one equals two. We don't need to try to reinvent math. We don't need to try to reinvent what God has said. We just need to say one plus one equals two. Confession with repentance by faith equals salvation. We don't need to try to reinvent that. We don't need to try to rework that. We just need to follow it. And yet, in our humanity, we begin to test God. God had said through the mouth of Moses and Aaron, God had said, this is what I want you to do. In other words, we hear, but we do not obey. The people had heard that this is what God wanted them to do. And yet, you look there in verse 20, it says, but they did not listen to Moses. How many times have we heard God's word and we say, I have heard what God wants me to do, but I am not going to do it. That's where that camp high comes in. Because Some of you young people, you've heard God's word all this week and you're like, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And this is what I'm, th these are the things that I'm going to make. And these are the recommitments that I'm going to do. And these are the, the, the resolutions that I am going to, to, to live by. And the next thing you know, life starts happening and you had heard God's word, but now you do not obey God's word. 
see these people here in this text. God said, I will provide, you obey. And they heard God, but they chose not to obey God. And then God had said, he had already told them, I want you to have a day set aside. I want you to have a day of rest. And so they knew what God's word was. They knew what the will of God was, but they refused to follow God's word. And they refused to follow God's will. And over and over, we test God. Oh, we test God. Oh, God, I see your goodness and that you didn't smite me when I became ungrateful. Oh, God, I see your goodness and the fact that even when I questioned you, you were still patient with me. And, oh, God, I see your goodness and the fact that you continue to overwhelm me with your love and your grace and your mercy in my life. Oh, God, I see that, but, God, I'm still going to test you at every single moment. And yet we see the good of goodness of God in display. In places like John 3.16 where God continues to provide hope for us even when we don't deserve it, and the fact that he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Or we see his goodness in places like Timothy, or I'm sorry, Titus, chapter 3 and verse 5, where the Bible says he saved us, talking about Christ. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Even though I test God, even though you might test God, God is still good to us because he still provides a way to him. And over and over again, we see the goodness of God. So here in Exodus chapter 16, we see on display, even when the people were ungrateful, even when the people were unwilling to uh, just be patient and wait upon the goodness of God, God shows his goodness to them. So we sing a song like Reckless Love. Or we sing a song like Gratitude and reminds us of the goodness of God for our lives. So how do we take this passage? How do we take this passage and then think about it in light of the core values of this church? We talked about the core values of this church being to build families, to teach the Bible, and to be the church. So how do we take a passage like this and then plug it in to the core values? And how do we apply it in the core values of this church? Three quick ways, and we'll, we'll be done this morning. But one of the ways that Exodus 16 is connected to the core value of building families is we realize that families reflect devotions. The families reflect devotions. You see this in the text. When the families are coming to Moses, they're in the first three verses of Exodus 16, and they're coming, and they're not saying, you know what, we need to pray. We don't have any food, and we're just looking, how do we provide? What does God want us to do? How does God want us to handle this? We have this need. Moses, lead us in the spiritual direction that God would have us. They don't do that. They come in and all they want to do is woe and agony and misery, oh my. All they want to do is say, me, me, me. All they want to do is say, we are not being satisfied. We want to be satisfied. And families often reflect devotions. If the family is devoted to the things that are not of God, then it will be reflected in how the family operates and how the family behaves and how the family reacts in times of strife and in times of troubles and in times of misery and in times of difficulty. The devotions of the family are reflected in the behavior of the family, which is why it matters. The foundation of our families, which is why it matters education of our families, which is why the spiritual health of our families matters, which is why families matter. 
It's not just a matter of coming in and saying, oh, well, isn't that just selective? And you're, you're cutting out the widowed. You're cutting out the, the widowers. You're cutting out the people that their families may be splintered. You're cutting out the people that may be not a complete family in the way that the mindset. You're cutting out. No, 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 no. We understand. We understand that the families are foundational to the future of our people. We understand that the family, and it may be a single mom, it may be a single dad, it may be a a, a different unit, but it's the family. It's that kids with a parental influence in the home and those kids not inside the church but inside of the home and the things that go on inside that home and the, the teaching and the instruction and the discipline and all those things, the family matters because the priorities and the devotions of the families will reflect their heart for God. And when you're teaching these children how to worship God. And then secondly... Secondly, when we think about the teaching the Bible, we understand that God is still providing. Why do we teach the Bible? Because we're reminding people that God is still providing. You go all back to Exodus 16, and you're like, all right, Spence, that's great. So when we get hungry today at lunch, we just need to say, God, you will give us things, and then God will bring dew, and he'll bring the quail, and that's what we do. No, 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 no. In a New Testament sense, we're reminded that God is still providing for us. God is still providing hope. He's still providing help. He's still providing answers. He's still providing a way. He is still providing all the things that we need to live faithfully for him. God is still providing. I don't want you to say it out loud. But think of one thing, one physical need that you have that God can't provide. Go ahead, I'll wait. Think. One thing that God can't provide. Well, Spence, I I want a brand new pickup. Well, God can't provide that. He may not provide it, but God can provide it, all right? I want to be six inches tall. God can do that. God may not do that, but God can do that. There's not a single thing that God cannot provide. And more so than that, it comes down to our spiritual lives and the fact that we need we need a right relationship and right fellowship with God. And God is still providing those things. And how do we know that? By teaching the Bible. By teaching God's Word, we're showing people how to have a right relationship and fellowship with God. Which is why it matters to teach people God's Word. So in Exodus chapter 16, the stories would then be told to the subsequent generations. And generations after generations would hear about the goodness of God and the provision of God and the mercy of God. And people grew up in those Jewish homes and those Hebrew homes hearing about the goodness of God and the provision of God. And how God took care of His people on their way from the Egyptian bondage to the promised land. Because they were wanting to remind their kids over and over again about the things of God. Which is why we do Sunday school. And it's why we do kids camp, and it's why we do youth camp, and it's why we do the summers at the gazebo. It's why we do the Wednesday nights. It's why we do the things that we do because we want to teach the children. We want to teach the adults. We want to teach the church about the goodness of God. And then this last one, and I'm done. We live God's word. We live God's word. How do we practice being the church by living God's word. When God's word says something and we hear it, we do it. When God says something and it's God's will, we live it. Friday night, I'm at the back of our group. Sixty, how many kids? Adam. Sixty-five. Sixty-five kids sitting there. And at best, 
we as a church, at best, we've got three or four years to minister to them. At best. Statistically speaking, the vast majority of young people, when they graduate high school and leave the home, they leave the church. Now, I'm not saying this has to do with me. I'm not saying this has to do with Adam. I'm not saying it has to do with one singular adult in this room. But my question is, is we've got a three or four year window to minister to them. How do we minister to them in such a way that they stay connected to the things of God? Because it would be fine if we have a phenomenal youth ministry. And man, we've got 150 people. We've got 300 kids. Let's say the enrollment of Wilson High School last year was somewhere around the 250 range. So let's say we had every single child enrolled in Wilson High School here in this student ministry. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. That'd be wonderful. And then just imagine in three years, they're all gone out of the church. Have we done our job? Have we been successful? So I'm sitting there at camp, and I'm looking, and I'm praying, because every one of these students, we've got a short window of time to minister to them and to impact them and influence them in a way that keeps them connected to the church throughout their early adulthood. So as I'm, as I'm thinking about this and I'm praying through this and I find myself saying, so, so what do we do? Is it a program? Is it a bribe? And to be honest with you all, I don't have an answer. Because I sat there Friday night thinking what it is that we as a church can do to most effectively minister to you all so that when you find yourself at 21 years old, you're more concerned about the things of God than you are about the things of this world. And I found myself wondering, what do we do? And then as Mike Keybone is preaching and as I'm thinking about this text, I find myself saying, well, maybe it's just as simple as we as a church living out faithfulness to God in front of you all. And maybe it's just a matter of you all seeing an authentic Christian life so that you see the value of it and you see the purpose of it outside of just this Sunday morning, but you see it in the world around you. Maybe it's just that we could do a better job of showing you the goodness of God in our lives. Maybe there's an opportunity for us as adults to practice Titus 2 and to recognize that we have a whole group of young people that are looking at our examples and our models and they're looking for our testimony and they're looking for our witness to say, is this thing worth pursuing after I get out of school? So church, there's an opportunity that we have to be the church by living God's word. I wish it was as simple as a program. I wish it was as simple as just put a mark on them. I wish it was as simple as just saying we're going to do something indoctrinational and we're going to do something and we're going to make them and we're going to force them. But the reality is is we as a church have a very small window of time to make a difference and make an influence and to minister to them in such a way that they don't look back 30 years later 
with the same testimony that many of us in this room have. So how do we do that? Well, maybe it's just as simple as asking ourselves the question in this room. What am I more concerned with? My satisfaction or my obedience to God? Exodus 16, the people come in. They weren't concerned with what God wanted them to do. They're more concerned with what they wanted from God. And I wonder if you're here this morning. Did you come in this morning with more desire to do what God would have you to do or more of a desire to get what you wanted from God? Would you bow your heads with me?